Hi, welcome to Tube to Table, the podcast about helping tube-fed kids become happy and healthy eaters. Every week, we will dive into the basics of tube weaning to help unravel the conflicting information families get from doctors, therapists, friends, and family. I'm Jenny, a feeding therapist, mom, and food lover. And I'm Heidi. I'm also a feeding therapist, and I love sharing meals with friends and family and helping kids learn to eat. Come with us as we share practical tips and provide real-world expert advice so that parents can help their little ones start their journey from feeding tube to family table. Hello, and welcome to Episode 5 of the Tube to Table podcast, Ready or Not. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about feeding tube readiness and what makes a kid ready to transition from tube feeds to oral eating. Heidi, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing really well. Thank you. So let's jump right in. This is one of our most common questions from listeners. And so we thought we'd break it down into a couple of different categories to kind of help people understand when their child may or may not be ready to wean. So the first thing that we look at in our program at Thrive by Spectrum Pediatrics is a series of readiness criteria. And the first one is that the medical condition that made the tube necessary in the first place is either resolved completely or it's being managed and treated and under control. And so that can be clearer in some cases and and a little bit more fuzzy in others, but that's why it's really important to have a great dialogue with your medical team and also hopefully some support from other professionals if you need it to help decide whether or not that's the case. And Jenny, I think this is one that gets really confusing because a lot of times something that caused the tube originally like rapid breathing or immaturity transitions to something like a feeding aversion, but it looks the same. Mm-hmm. So people think that the original problem is still there, but if you ask, are they still having rapid breathing? they would be able to say no, but because the refusal hasn't changed, it feels like the problem hasn't changed. So like you said, it really does take a lot of digging sometimes on how the original problem has morphed or changed, or is it still causing the problem that it initially did? Yeah. And that's a perfect point about feeding aversion because the feeding aversion, and I, this is hard when you're in it to see, I, I know from firsthand experience, whatever the feeding aversion is, is not the, tr- usually it's not its own diagnosis. I've never come across, have you, a case where no, the feeding uh-uh, aversion is I was something else. It feels like it often, but generally there's a reason for a feeding aversion. And it could be the rapid breathing, it could be the medical procedures or medical trauma or vomiting or a number of other types of things that can cause a feeding aversion. But that can be a really helpful thing as we're this first criteria of trying to figure out have things been resolved or are they under control? In this case, when there's a feeding aversion or a lack of interest in eating, the question of why has that been addressed? And so, you know, sometimes it's as simple as something like reflux or a tongue tie or something very simple in an otherwise healthy child. And sometimes it's really big stuff like heart surgery or, you know, extreme prematurity. So just remember to kind of like follow the dots all the way back to the actual medical condition or series of events that led to the aversion or reason why the child isn't eating orally. So that's the first criteria for readiness. And then the second one is it's really important that it's been established that the child has the ability to grow and gain tube or no tube. (laughs) So we want to make sure that there's no kind of endocrine or other medical situation going on that would make it difficult for the child to be able to grow and gain. It's something you'd want to know before you wean them from a tube. And so most people, by the time you're considering listening to this podcast or even thinking about going down the path of weaning your child, already know that your child 
maybe it's difficult, but they can gain if they need to. And I think it's worth a question still because we've had a number of kids who'd gotten the tube who weren't growing well on the tube either. And all of those dots had been crossed. Mm -hmm. So the tube wasn't the answer. The tube didn't help like they thought it was going to. So it's still worth a conversation with your medical team. It's worth giving a call to someone who understands tube weaning Mm-hmm. to see if there's more to that equation. Because there have been a number of kids that when we really dug down and looked at it, the tube itself was contributing to the growth problems. But the tube felt safer to the team or mm-hmm. to everybody. So it, then they're like, oh, well, the tube's working. And in actuality, it may not have made the situation dramatically better. So in terms of that growth and gaining, mm-hmm. just that they can grow or gain, it doesn't necessarily mean, <laughs> like probably most of our listeners, that they're going to be growing and gaining great or ideally, that doesn't have to be there necessarily. And then the next area that's super important is safety, obviously. In fact, it probably should be our first area, though we do want to make sure those medical conditions are um, being addressed first. So in addition to the medical safety, like is this, can this child wean from a medical standpoint, there's also dysphagia or swallowing. Does the child have the ability to safely swallow so that liquids don't spill into their airways or put them at risk of developing aspiration or other conditions that could jeopardize their health? And Heidi is a dysphagia specialist. So Heidi, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about aspiration. Sure. Obviously, if we know that they're aspirating everything that they put in their mouth, they're not ready to be an oral eater. What we ask is that they are either no clinical signs or reasons or symptoms of aspiration. There's not a a reason to suspect that there's aspiration. So you don't need to have a swallow study for us to work with a wean. If there's no clinical indicators of aspiration, it's not a hurdle that you need to jump just to be exposed to radiation, to be exposed to radiation. But we do know that there are a number of kids that we work with that have some potential for aspiration or have a medical condition that makes that a question. And we would like for them to be safe with at least one consistency. You don't have to be safe with everything. But we know from the literature that swallowing is the best exercise for swallowing. So if you're safe on at least one consistency, that is a lays nice groundwork to become a better swallower at the other consistencies. As long as you're exposed to them in a safe way, you're not just drinking everything of your unsafe consistency, but that you get lots of practice with the one that you're safe with is going to let them become better at all of the consistencies. Yeah. And just a quick note, the swallow studies that Heidi's referring to are swallow studies that are done kind of under x-ray, if you will, to look at the swallowing mechanisms. And so that's why you were referring to radiation that helps people visualize the swallowing and make sure that liquids aren't kind of traveling into parts of the respiratory system that they're not supposed to or getting too close to it. And so Heidi, can you just tell us a little bit about some of the clinical non-imaging, though non-related to swallow study signs and symptoms of aspiration that we would be seeing if a child was continually aspirating? Well, the first one that everybody looks at is chronic respiratory illnesses or complications. If you continually have food or liquid entering your airway, you're going to continually get sick. Some people report coughing, choking, sputtering, wet voice. For some kids, For babies, either they stop breathing when they're really, really young. One of the indicators in the NICU is they just stop breathing when there's something in their airway. But the biggest thing would be respiratory illnesses, I think, that they haven't 
tracked back to a virus or any other reason for them to continually be getting sick. It couldn't be a virus if it's happening frequently enough and mm-hmm. there's not another explanation. And then we ha- we also know that less frequently, sometimes fevers of unknown origin or other types of congestion can be affiliated. But you're right, that respiratory one is a big one to kind of take a look at. So just because your child has problems or challenges when it comes to swallowing doesn't mean that they're not going to just be able to swallow. To Heidi's point about how swallowing helps you get better at swallowing and kids are already, most of our the kids we're working with are already swallowing their saliva all day long. And so it can be really helpful to keep that in mind. And then for kids that really can only safely swallow right now, one consistency, if you're even able to know that, if they're taking anything by mouth at all, I like to remind people that all infants start out on one consistency and they can get their needs met. And so it's possible to get all of your nutrients. You know, we can make it work if there's at least one safe consistency for kids. Thanks for explaining a little bit more about aspiration, Heidi. The last kind of one of a really often overlooked, but really important criteria is family readiness and coping. So we um, know that most of the time when kids have feeding tubes, there's been a series of, if not traumatizing, though often traumatizing, certainly very stressful events that led to the medical conditions or the hospitalizations that resulted in your child having or needing a feeding tube. And so we just like to point that out, that on top of kind of like regular life stuff that can happen in every family, that often there's a lot of stress and stuff going on inside families of kids that have been through a lot. And so it's really important that we just acknowledge that that's true with each other as colleagues, as people that are working together, both on the family front and as therapists, and acknowledge and have parents acknowledge that it's certainly not a good time to do anything dramatically different and difficult if your family is in a place of extreme chaos or challenge, because you know, it's only going to add to the matters. Now, sometimes eliminating the tube can be very freeing and can really reduce stress. But the process of getting there, even though it's really worth it in many cases, isn't super easy. Like most people know that have fed a child at any point in their life, it's not always a straight line and weaning a child off a feeding tube when you've had the kind of safety of scheduled and measurable tube feeds can be really challenging when And then they're, of course, feeling hunger and new sensations for the first time, which can be hard and important, but hard. So it's really important that every family knows and takes a look at where they are in terms of coping and stress and make sure that they choose the right time for them to do this big endeavor to decide to wean from the tube. So that kind of leads us into our next topic, which is why weeding isn't always the right thing to do which can help people weigh when the time might be right for their family, kind of considering some reasons why waiting might not be right. And the first reason is that there are critical windows or critical periods of time during which we know that children are the most able to learn the skills that they need to become eaters. And so Heidi, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about those critical windows and break it down for our listeners. Yeah, definitely. We know from the tube weaning literature that Once you are over three years of age, it can get a little bit harder to wean from the tube. And that's really based, I think, on two different areas of development that have critical windows. A critical window doesn't mean you can't learn anymore. Our brain is always learning. We can always learn new things. But critical windows are when your brain is most primed and ready and targeted towards specific areas of development. And since being an oral eater is really based on a couple of different areas, the first one being the most obvious, which is oral skills. And we know that most kids are learning 
the oral skills of eating and making them more automatic under the age of 18 months or so. So we know that the sucking and swallowing and spoon use and chewing and all of those things are developed typically in that in that window of time. So it makes sense to be learning those skills as close to the typical age when that would happen. And then the other thing is a little bit more vague, which is self-regulation, specifically the self-regulation of of your intake, which is some people call energy compensation. And we know that infants and toddlers are actually the best at this. And then the older you get and the more that you get into the preschool age, the more susceptible you are to what's going on around you and whims and (laughs) all of the distractors that can happen. And so the sooner that you can become in charge of your own intake and the sooner that you're the one who is in charge of regulating the amount of energy that your body has, the better so that you're you're within that infant, toddler, or early stages for that. Again, this doesn't mean you can't do it later. You can always learn those things, but it's the most smooth and easy if you're doing it in the timing that is the most appropriate for learning. Yeah. And those ideal times are really important also because in terms of self-regulation, because in the medical literature, in the research, um, and we'll link to a few of these studies in in the show notes, there is evidence that suggests that if you don't develop good self-regulation skills, it puts your health at risk. And I think we've talked about that in a previous episode, but it puts your health at risk later in life. And so things like problems with weight, eating disorders, obesity, diabetes, drug abuse, they all are correlated with poor self-regulation in childhood. And so we don't want to do anything to help have these for kids that are just learning to eat and have had a fragile relationship with food and eating from the beginning to put them at even further risk down the line. And so that's one of the reasons why the self-regulation piece is really key. And what we find is that There's a lot of parents that come to us, but also who we talk to kind of out there in groups about feeding tubes that say that they are told, just wait, just wait. They'll learn how to eat. When they're bigger, you can talk to them about it and teach them how to do it. And I understand that it may seem easier later. I think that it's also really important to consider these things though. And I think that it gets often overlooked and I'm not blaming doctors because like we've said in previous episodes, they get very little training on this stuff. And they can't possibly have every single article that's ever been written about feeding and every other topic that they have to know about at their disposal. So we'll, we'll link to some of those articles that talk about both the critical windows for feeding skill development, the critical reasons for self-regulation in early childhood when it's possible, and then the article about feeding tube weaning and, and the suggestion that it does definitely get harder after three years of age. And one of the things that just really resonates in my head a lot is that particularly kids who have developmental challenges on top of the feeding tube or in addition to the feeding tube, sometimes it feels like that self-regulation data and all of those critical windows and all of those things don't apply to them, that instead they have this other set of criteria. But it's really true that they have these truths. Self-regulation is still true for them in addition to all of their other complications. They need more attention paid to this, not less. Yeah. And I think for somebody that's going to need their feeding tube for the rest of their life, and it's going to help them thrive and be healthy, there's absolutely ways to make sure that those people aren't at risk and that they can develop self-regulation in other ways. But I do think that our tube-fed kids who are temporarily being tube-fed, who aren't going to need their tubes forever, people tend to think that it's like this neutral thing, that the tube, the effect of the tube and any risk that might be associated with it is neutral. And so 
again, while if you need your tube in the long term, you can control for all of these things. And at some point, we'll have a little bit more of a further conversation about how to go about doing that. There's some great resources out there. But the tube for a child that isn't going to need it forever, we'd like to assume competence, presume competence and, and have the mindset that if this child is going to eat, let's assume that they can do it in the most normal and functional way possible so that they have a lifetime of healthy eating. It's important if that's the case that we consider kind of the things that go into making the tube not necessarily the most positive if you don't need it any longer. So let's get into some of the reasons why a feeding tube may not be necessarily the best thing for a kiddo who isn't going to need it in the long term when those readiness criteria have been controlled for, the child's medically stable, and safety's already been determined. There's medical and dental complications. So medically, we're not medical doctors and we're not going to pretend to be. I'm Jenny and I'm an OT and Heidi's a speech therapist and we are specialists in weaning kids off their feeding tubes, but we're not medical doctors. And so I think it's really important to kind of look to the medical literature to kind of support this. But any parent of a child that has a feeding tube knows about these complications, either the risks or deals with them on a regular basis. Everything from infection to irritation from the tube, whether it be an NG tube irritation on the face or in the back of the throat to reflux and the increased incidence of reflux in kids that experience in certain types of feeding tubes in certain situations, all the way down to granulation tissue and the dental complications. There is evidence out there in several studies that suggest that people and children with feeding tubes are at increased risk of decay because their mouth isn't getting used in the way that produces saliva that's protective. And so those things are important. (laughs) Now, if the tube is helping a child stay healthy and those risks are worth it because it's preventing other more serious developmental or medical complications, that's fine. But we just like to point out that it needs to be considered. These things tend to be ignored and they are there and they are real, those medical and dental complications. And then the other one that we don't need to tell parents about is the socialization piece of it. Often people that are going to have tubes for their whole lives have really great ways of, you know, the tube becomes a part of them and they can go about living their lives and socialize in the same way that anybody else would with the adaptation of the tube. However, for people that have kids that needed feeding tubes that no longer need them, it can be a little bit isolating. It can be hard to feed a kid on the go. It can be hard to cart all of that equipment with you. It can be also hard for children to enjoy a meal and the socialization that comes with it with their peers and family members. And certainly, we all know both from a quality of life standpoint and a developmental standpoint that socialization is hugely valuable and important. And we talk growth and brain development is certainly huge. Obviously, but what we also know is that the older kids get, the less their brain growth and learning is tied to simply nutrition, Mm -hmm. but it's also, we're designed to learn from our experiences. So for kids who aren't eating or who aren't going to restaurants and birthday parties, again, if you need the tube for the long term, there's ways to control for that and ways to have a full and enjoyable life. But for those kids who are going to be eaters or have the potential to be eaters, they're missing out on many, many opportunities of development and growth that is limiting their growth in other ways, you know, that they're missing out on. Yeah, we have a lot of parents, uh, we have an incidental finding that we hope to publish at some point, but we have a ton of kids in our program that when they're weaned successfully from the feeding tube, have a huge explosion in motor skills 
and other skills like communication. So, which kind of makes sense when it comes to motor skills. If you're filled with liquid, because <laughs> that's generally what's going in the tube and it's sloshing around in there, you may be less comfortable moving around. Virginia, in our episode last week, shared with us how her daughter, Violet, she had to like, they just like, were so careful not to move her when she got a tube feed because vomiting could happen really quickly and they didn't want to do anything to kind of lose the precious food that they had just put in and given to her. And so it makes sense that just from like kind of the liquid being full of liquid standpoint, moving around would be hard. Plus for kids that do have tubes, sometimes movement can be limited because parents haven't quite figured out yet what to do with a tube actually attachment hanging off the child. And then also the tube like if you have a button or a G-tube, it can be actually hard to be on your stomach, which is a really important thing for infants and toddlers to be able to do before they learn to walk. And we also know that skills in adults and children don't develop in isolation, that all development is interconnected. And being more independent in one area, we've certainly seen kids time after time after time become more independent in other areas. In fact, during a wean, we, like Jenny was saying, we often have kids who will take first steps or say first words or do hard things that they'd never done before, even during the wean, which is just um, fascinating. And, you know, some of these kids have been in therapy for years, so it's not like we can take credit for every development that happens, but it's interesting that almost everyone begins to show some kind of progress or development in areas besides eating during this process. I think even as adults, we can understand the more you learn you're capable and independent, the more confident you are and less afraid you are to try new and different things because it builds your self-esteem. It builds your confidence in in yourself and in the world around you doesn't feel quite as intimidating. And so you're going to be more likely to take risks or take steps quite literally or uh, figuratively. And then Heidi, I just wanted to bump back to something that you said before that point, which was um, this thing about how in context, when we're learning things, by doing the actual things versus by like replicating it or trying to achieve exercises. It is really helpful when we're considering whether or not to wean a child off the feeding tube to know that Heidi and I really love looking at the literature, the scientific literature out there, but in the literature on motor learning, which means how our brains and bodies learn how to move and develop all over the literature on how children and adults motor learn there is information to support that if it's done in a simulation or if it's done through exercise or even if it's done with someone else's help or because someone else wants it done, the recovery is slower. And when it's done for the right reasons, for the true reasons, and when the child's actually experiencing the skill, whether it be learning to walk or reach or whatever, in this case, eat, the results are much better kids do better when they're actually practicing. And I think that's a really important thing to consider is that a lot of parents find themselves super frustrated because they're in therapy or they're trying to work on exercises, but a child isn't necessarily hungry. They don't understand why eating is important. They're not doing it because they want to do it. And what we know is that when we do things in simulation, which is what that feels like to a kid, (laughs) the brain isn't changing as fast as it, it could be if it were being done for other motivations, those kind of internal motivations to eat, like hunger. Yeah, Jenny, that goes back to one of the first things that we're working for during our weans is intention, is that the kids are intentionally eating, that they want to eat, that they initiate the process. And that's one of the things that differentiates our progress, I think, from other methods, which are more adult directed, that the intention is a critical piece in not only enjoyment, but also skill acquisition. 
Yeah. There's one additional piece that is easy to overlook for people who don't live in a house with a child who is tube fed, but we've heard story after story of families who just couldn't leave the house. Their child was throwing up multiple times a day. They were, you know, in the case of an NG tube, having to reinsert it repeatedly. Which could work for some family, but it can be super stressful for others. It depends on your child and how they're responding to the tube. It does depend on how you're responding to the tube. But what we know from the experience with all of our families, which is backed up from the literature too, is that initially the tube can bring a sense of relief. Mm-hmm. And again, if you need this for the long term, it is a relief to have a feeding tube and it's not a bad thing. But we also know that a lot of times families report that when there's a feeding tube in place, they have a harder time finding childcare. Their families and friends understand it less. It leads to more isolation. And these are all things that we know personally from a, a practical standpoint, but also from the literature that this is a negative Negative for the health of a family, which in the long run is a negative for the health of the child and shouldn't be overlooked in, in one of the factors on if it's time to wean from the tube or not. Right. Because first, we we generally, we obviously don't want parents to be experiencing stress in their own, right? Like that's not what we want for anyone, but it does show, the literature does show that when a family is stressed, it has a negative impact on everyone's health. And that's a really important thing to consider when you're talking to your medical team about the health reasons or medical reasons to wean. And then another quick note about family stress is particularly with mothers, but with mothers and fathers, we know that when there's a breakdown in your ability to feed your child successfully, or when there's a perceived breakdown, meaning even if the tube is working, but it's not sitting right with you, and Virginia touched on this last week, it has a tremendous impact on how parents are coping and how they're feeling about themselves as parents. And so again, parents can learn how to feed their children in a really responsive way with a feeding tube. But when it's not happening, and you're kind of stuck in that limbo land, it can be really stressful. And it can really cause a lot of pain for family members, for moms and dads that are looking to be able to feed their kids is one of those primary ways of relating to our children. I think that's it. I think we talked a little bit about the readiness criteria and some of the reasons why not to wait. There are, of course, lots of reasons to wait, which are pretty much the flip side of the coin we just discussed. If there's a ton of stress and the tube is helping relieve it, that's an important consideration. If your child's not medically ready and if... For instance, they're looking down the road at more surgeries or other conditions, you know, that need to be addressed. Certainly the tube, getting them weaned off a feeding tube isn't always the right time. Um, If you want any more information about when it is the right time to wean your child off the feeding tube, check out the show notes, stay tuned on our blog, and stay tuned for some future episodes in which we're going to talk a little bit more about some of these medical arguments for why kids are being tube fed. So we touched on one that's coming up really soon, which is weight and growth and how those things kind of get disproportionately examined as readiness criteria when in fact they should be considered with the entire health and wellness of the child. We'll be back next week and we look forward to sharing some of that information with you very soon. Take care. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Tube to Table podcast. Every week, we're going to share our show notes at thrivewithspectrum.com. In the show notes, you can find a summary of what we discussed and links to all the resources that we mentioned. Also, you can visit us on social media and Instagram and Facebook. We can be found at Thrive with Spectrum. And on Twitter, you can find us at Thrive with SP. Please don't hesitate to reach out to us on social media and let us know if you have any input or any topics that you'd really like to see us address. We'll be back next week.